You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. On this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast, we sit down with Philippe, who is a TEDx speaker, growth expert, entrepreneur, CEO, venture capitalist, board member, and more. For three decades in Silicon Valley, he's helped grow and run businesses. He's a managing partner at Blue Dot Partners, LLC, a management consultant firm focused on top-line revenue acceleration for companies or business units with at least 10 million in sales. On today's show, we talk about what are the five stages of growth throughout a business life cycle? How do growth expectations change with the economic developments? What is the sink and tower analysis? What is the A4 precision alignment paradigm? And how do companies lose alignment and how can they get them back? This and much more on this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast. Now let's begin. Enjoy. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. Philippe, thank you for taking the time this week to be on the Silicon Valley Podcast. Now, I'm super excited about today's episode. I read your book a while ago, and it's been a while, so... I'm excited to have you on the show, but for our audience out there, before we dive into the questions, can you give a brief introduction of your career up until this point? Sure. And thank you again for inviting me on the show. It's really a pleasure. I am an entrepreneur at heart. I have been in Silicon Valley for 33 years and I actually started a company, a unique software company when I moved here. And then I went into electronic publishing. I thought that there would be a massive transition from atoms to bits. And I worked for Hachette, one of the largest publishing companies in the world, and really helped them transition from paper print into electronic publishing. And I negotiated a deal with Apple and the guy at Apple liked me and asked me to join. And I joined Apple and I studied the Apple Studio, which was focused on the content developer community. And then I studied the Internet Commerce Group. I went to the CEO and I said, we need to sell directly over the internet, which was a crazy idea back in 97. And I worked for Steve Jobs for a year, which is how I lost my hair, in case you wondered. And, <laughs> I became more handsome is what you're trying to say. <laughs> That's right. And, and after that, I went to the VC business by accident. I was on the board of the Annenberg Cinematographic School at USC. And one of the board members was a venture capitalist. And he said, why don't you come and work for us? And I did. And I invested in companies in seed and early stage startups. And some of them were great successes. Others didn't go anywhere, which is the business model. And then I went into management consulting. So I helped company optimize their channels for very large companies like Microsoft and SAP and Intel and Cisco. And then I studied Blue Dots about five, six years ago now, which will help company grow faster. Back when you went to the venture capital route, was that something that was intentional at that time? Were people kind of fighting for a position in VC like they are now? Or was it just, okay, I'll try it out? It was a pure accident. I never woke up in the morning saying I want to be a venture capitalist. In fact, I didn't even know what it meant. And I mean, I knew what it meant, but I didn't know what it means in terms of day to day. What do you really do? So I was very skeptical at the beginning. And in fact, I said, no, I said the idea of writing a check to a company and sitting on the board is not appealing to me. I'm an entrepreneur. I want to do things. I want to change the world. And they convinced me that they were doing a little bit more than just writing a check and sitting on board, which is true. And then I actually liked it. I found it interesting because we looked at, I looked at 2,300 companies and really interesting CEOs and businesses. And I think I founded 14 of them. And I found this process of really evaluating an idea and a team and the market really quite fascinating. 
So going back to the idea that you pitched to do e-commerce on the internet, and that was a radical idea, I'm kind of curious, what were those conversations? Was, was it just, no, the internet's just a fad? Or I just can't imagine Apple, of all companies, not being first movers to the internet at that time. Well, we were. I mean, back, you know, Netscape went public in August 1995, and I joined Apple in 97, two years after. So we knew that the internet was going to be big. There was no questions about that. But the idea that somebody would buy a Macintosh directly on an apple.com website, that was very scary to Apple. And there were a lot of issues. One of them was like, why would anybody put a credit card number on the internet? So there was a lot of security issues. There was privacy issues. But the biggest issue was how are we going to explain that we're going to compete against our channel partners? So Apple was a 100% indirect business. You could buy a Mac from CompUSA and outlets and stores or through different direct shipment companies. But you could not go to Apple. There was no Apple store, physical stores, and you could not go to apple.com to buy a Mac. And the hard conversation was to convince the management team that, yes, it's okay to sell direct as long as we observe a couple of rules. Why One is we don't sell at a lower price than the MSRP, which is the manufacturing price. And two, there was allocation issues. We were manufacturing those machines, but we never knew how many we needed to build. So we would we had a rule that says we if we are low in inventory, we would fulfill the channels first and then Apple.com second. So we had to go over those different considerations in order to be able to launch the online store. But it was a very difficult battle. Michael Spindler was the CEO at the time, didn't want to do it. Gil Emilio became CEO, didn't want to do it. And it wasn't until I met Steve jobs and Steve got it right away and basically gave the green light and then we launched it. Was there a difference in kind of thinking mentality between all those different people in charge you just mentioned? Oh, there's no questions and nobody thinks like Steve. Yes, very much so. Yeah. And then after that, after the VC route, and I'm really curious how you went and analyzed 2,300 companies and were able to actually pick 14. That's a lot of vetting. What was the process to whittle it down to just those 14? Well, we had a database. We would log every single deal in the database. And then we'll start to look at where does the deal come from? Was it referred from another VC firm, for example? Did it come over the transom? How did we get approached by the entrepreneur? And then what is the idea? What's the market? What's the differentiation? So we would look at that document, the executive summaries before meeting with them. And we would look at everything. And then if we like them, we say, okay, let's, I would have a one-on-one -on -one meeting with the CEO to try to get a sense of the business and the idea and the excitement they had on the business. And then if I liked it, maybe I have another meeting with one of my partners. And then if we liked it, we would bring them to the partnership meeting, which is every Monday morning. And then the partnership would decide, okay, we like you. We're going to do some due diligence. We're going to put together a term sheet and we give them a term sheet. We send the term sheet and then we finish the due diligence and then we sign and we close. But very many companies, we were very quickly decided not to pursue because it was obvious that to us, it would not be a big enough business or they were small market or there was too much competition or things like that. And then why pivot into management consultant instead of staying with the VC route for the next 20 years and doing five different funds and driving to McClellan? Yeah, well, I'm not so much a car guy, so the McLaren wasn't really appealing to me. But uh, I think that the issue is that if you're a true entrepreneur and a CEO, you run a business seven by 24, you live in this very deep groove, you never see the sun and you're dedicated to that. 
that's one extreme. The other extreme is you're a VC, you put money into a company, you sit on the board and you kind of help the CEO as much as you can. But the, you, there is no real operational effect of what you do. You're trying to help and you're trying to be a diplomat and you're trying to convince the CEO that it's his or her idea and not yours. And as a board member, you have a very interesting question, which is what is your true relationship with the CEO? Because on one level, you can say the company is not going anywhere with the board affirming you. That's one extreme. And the other extreme is to say, Sean, this is the advice I give you, but you're going to tell me you're going to do whatever you want because it's your business because you're the CEO. And that's the other extreme. I want it to sit in the middle. I want it to be able to have a true impact without being the CEO and without going the extreme of firing the CEO if he or she doesn't do a good job. And I found that management consulting is perfect because you can give true objective advice. I'm not on the board, so it doesn't matter if the CEO does it. I'm not an investor, so I don't have any vested interest in the outcome. And I can be truly authentic and honest and say, look, this is what I would do if I were you. Whether you'll do it or not is entirely your decision. And it doesn't really affect me exactly like a doctor would give you a prescription. And of course, they want you to take the pills. But if you say, I'm not going to take the pills, the doctor says, well, that's not what I would do if you were a member of my family. But it's not my job to convince you to do it. So I didn't want to be in the business of convincing people to do the right thing. I wanted to be in the business of giving the best possible advice and explain why and then let them decide. And management consulting is the perfect balance between those two extremes. And then, so you went the route of management consultant. When did you decide, let me put all my, let me put some of this knowledge into a book? Well, the book, the idea is to try to solve the problem of growth. And the the fundamental question is, what do you do on Monday morning at eight o'clock to grow your business? And it's a deceptively simple question, but really hard to answer. It's a little bit like saying, what do you do on Monday morning at eight o'clock to be a good parent? Well, there are hundreds of books about this, but you cannot have a diploma. You cannot go to school and get a certificate to be a good dad or a good mother. And I've been on 23 boards and I got tired of not being able to have a crisp answer to how do we even answer that question? And so I realized that the reason companies don't grow is because they are fundamentally misaligned somewhere between the company and the target market. And I found a way to actually measure those alignments and understand them at a pretty deep level. And that solved the problem of what do I do? Because now I know what to do because I know where they are misaligned. I can take actions. I can put a growth playbook together. And I really wanted to share this idea with the world. I wanted any entrepreneur, any CEO, any business leader to know that there is a whole new way to think about this challenge of growth. And that's the reason I wrote the book. So at the very beginning of the book, there's one quote that stands out of my mind. And it was, if a company is not growing relative to its market, it's on the decline in path. Now, it does make sense, but can you go into more detail about that? I think growth is everything. I think that you cannot create value, shareholder value without growth. And there are two types of companies, the companies that cannot structurally grow. So for example, if you're a dentist or if you're a restaurant owner and you want to double your revenue, well, you can't really. You would have to have twice the amount of space to put tables as a restaurant owner. Well, you can do that because you have a fixed room or you can multiply by two all your pricing. Well, your customers are not going to come anymore because it's too expensive. Those fundamental business are not subject to the law of growth. They don't have to grow because they don't have shareholders. Nobody invested in them. 
and it's a cash flow repeatability and cash flow projection business. Now, I would argue they still have to grow because inflation is there. And if they don't grow their top line and inflation is coming, well, they're going to lose money and they're going to run out of business. So they're going to die, but in a much slower way. Now, if you are a venture backed company or you have friends and family money into the company, as soon as the first dollar is raised, your job as a CEO is completely changed is to create value for the for your investors. And if you are not growing, you cannot create value. You can create temporary value for a while, but there is no sustainable value. And that's so growing is the only way that I know of to create real and sustainable shareholder value. That's interesting with the restaurant and the size and the growth. And yeah, you could totally visualize the, the whole thing and the the excitement towards the startups and that almost limitless growth that they have. Also in the book, you mentioned a little about the awareness of claim and there's a graph and how to look at it. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think the idea is that the claim must be aligned with the customer's pain. In fact, it's the first of the four alignments. So customer has a pain, you have to really deeply understand what that pain is or that problem is. And the claim is the way you're going to solve that problem. So the problem is a lot of companies are not very clear on their claim. They make a general claim. It's not defined. It's not provable. It's not actionable. And if when that happens, then there is a misalignment between the pain and the claim. And that's going to be in the way of growth. The other problem is a lot of time companies don't do precision segmentation. So they don't look at the entire market and say, okay, which are the very specific segments we want to focus on? that have that particular pain and they know they have the pain. I don't have to try to convince them they have it. And if you don't do that, then you start to sell, you start to have a claim that's very general to people who don't really care. There's no resonance with the prospects and therefore prospects are not buying and then you're not growing. You said the awareness of claim is one of four. What are the four? Yeah, so the, the four are the following. The first one is the pain and the claim, as I just explained. The pain of the customer and the claim the business makes have to be aligned. And the example I use is you have a headache and I show you a stomachache pill where your pain and my claim are not aligned. You will never buy my pill. The second one is the understanding of the claim, which is what I call the perception. And then the expression of the claim, which is the message have to be aligned. So imagine I have a pill for your headache and I describe it to you in Korean. I'm assuming you don't speak Korean. I know you speak Chinese. Well, there's a lot of assumptions being made. Well, that's true. (laughs) I'm going to say it in French and I'm assuming you don't speak French. You will never buy my pill because you're like, what the heck is this guy talking about? Even though it would be the perfect pill for your headache. So that's the second alignment. The third one is the way customers want to buy and the way the product is sold in the marketplace have to be aligned. So if I say, well, Sean, you can get my pill, but I don't have it here with me. You have to drive to San Francisco to get it, you're going to say, well, wait a minute, there's a pharmacy just next door. Why can't I just walk there and buy the pill? And then the last alignment is my favorite one. I actually stole it out of the Apple playbook. I learned many valuable lessons working for Steve, but one of them in particular struck me and became the foundation of this fourth alignment. I realized that there is one and only one business on this planet. I realized that everybody is in the exact same business. There is no difference between Bank of America and a cafe in the corner and Tesla and any company. They're all doing the same thing. And that unique business is the manufacturing and delivery of delight. That's the business delight. You have to delight your customer. That's the business you own. So the alignment is that the expected delight that a customer has and what is delivered to that customer, those two things must be aligned. You cannot expect something and then you realize you consume the product or the service and you realize, well, this is not what I'm expected because then you're going to be unhappy. So that's the fourth axis of alignment, I know, which is how, how much do you delight your customer and that's related to what they actually expect. Of the four, is any one more important than the others? That's a great question. The simple answer is no, because you're basically asking me 
as a doctor, as a physician, well, is my brain more important than my heart or my lungs? And it's like they're all equivalent because if one of them doesn't work, you don't breathe that much and you're dead. So the short answer is no, there is not one that's more important than the other. You have to align your business along those four axes. You have no choice if you want to grow. Okay. So if I want to grow, I need all four. Can I be successful with three out of the four if I'm an early stage company or are all four met when you have product market fit or... I'm just kind of curious when a company can claim they have all four. Well, they can claim they own four when they are growing fast within the target market. That's the measurement of success, in my opinion. So a company will not achieve its full growth potential if it's misaligned along one of those four axes or more than one. They're going to grow. They may grow at 10%, but if they are in a market that's growing at 42%, by definition, they are losing market share. Somebody else is eating their lunch. That's not good. So if I look at the alignment and I say, well, are you growing at your full potential or close to your full potential? If the answer is yes, then you're probably well aligned with your market. If the answer is no, you're misaligned somewhere. And then no, I don't necessarily know which one it is unless we do the analysis, but I know there is a fundamental misalignment somewhere, at least one. Going to growth, what are the different stages of growth in the business life cycle? Well, I look at it as the power of 10. So 10 to the power of zero is one. So the first stage is when you have no revenue, which is really the infancy of the company, if you will. And then you have to grow from zero to one million. That's kind of the startup phase. And then one to 10, which is the adolescence phase, because you can still screw up a lot of things and get to 10 million and that's okay. But then if you want to grow from 10 to 100, that's kind of the adult phase, if you will. And then growing from 100 above that is the maturity phase. So that's kind of the way I look at businesses by going from zero to one, one to 10, 10 to 100, and then above 100. In that path from zero to one, one to 10, 10 to 100 beyond, where do you see companies making sacrifices in order to hit growth targets or where as they grow, you'll hear startups going, we need to have 100% growth every year to attract investors. Where are they cutting corners most of the time? Well, there's many places they cut corner. I think the issue is that kind of upside down. The reason they say I need to double every year is not because they want to, it's because their investors are pushing them to do that because they invested at a high valuation and they know that they want to do 10x on that valuation. So they do the math and say, well, if you don't double every year, you're not going to get there. It's very artificial. And I think it's detrimental to most companies that I know. I think it's wrong to say you have to grow at that pace because you don't even know what's the growth of the market. And so I talk about in the book about growth, like drinking wine, which is you have to do it responsibly. And if you grow too fast and you sacrifice things like really making the right putting the right processes in place, really keenly understanding your market, your go-to-market motions, your customer segmentation, your pricing optimization, your messaging, all those things, then yes, you may grow artificially fast for a year or two, but it's not sustainable. In the meantime, you burn a lot of money, a lot of cash, and then you have to go back. And then, well, they say, well, you only grew at 80%, which is a remarkable growth rate. And it's like, we're not going to fund you anymore, or we're going to fund you, we have to reevaluate the valuation, and we're going to flip the cap table upside down. And all that really hurts the entrepreneurs and the management team and the founders. You often hear startups discussing valuation of their companies. Should startups also be discussing growth expectations of their company? Absolutely. I think that valuation is not important. I mean, how many times a year do you wake up in the morning and think about how much is your house really valued at? How much is it worth? I mean, it doesn't happen that often. Now, do you worry about maintaining your house? Yes, probably. So it's the value creation is a byproduct of the growth 
strategy and implementation and success, it's not the other way around. And that's the problem with a lot of VC firms and Silicon Valley in general. It's like we set a valuation and we set a growth path and then we're like, well, you got to do it. I was like, how do I do it? And I think, again, that's just not the right way to think about it. You should think about your growth plan and then you can map the valuation, a reasonable valuation along that plan, but not the other way around. So should the entrepreneur be set in this growth path or the VC set in the growth path? The VCs have no idea. I mean, they're just going to look at their portfolio and say, well, most of my portfolio are growing 80%. You should grow at 80%. Based on what? I mean, what's the market? What's the product? Everybody is different. Good entrepreneurs understand that growth path and then they should pitch saying, this is how I'm going to conquer that market. This is how I'm going to win in the marketplace. And my growth rate has to be compared to the growth rate of that particular target market, not to the other portfolio company, which are doing something completely different. So, but it takes discipline and it takes courage, but also a clear understanding of what your growth path path is, which most entrepreneurs are not paying enough attention to that. That's fascinating. How important should macroeconomics be in determining the growth path? I mean, say there's a recession or slowdown, how impactful or how should that be calculated, I guess, in the growth expectations for a company? For startups, they shouldn't care and it shouldn't affect them. I hear many times the best companies are created in recessions, during recessions. I heard that many times. Well, I looked at the data. There's a lot of really incredible companies that were created in non-recession environments. So I haven't seen any convincing scientific data that says you should create your company now because we're in a recession. And by the way, I don't know anybody, I don't know any entrepreneur who has this vision and this passion and said, well, you know what? I'm going to wait two years because I think there's going to be a recession and then I start the business. They just do it. They don't even think about that. And I think that unless you're a billion dollar company or $10 billion company where you're affected by global economics environment, if you're a small company less than 100 million, it doesn't really matter what the macroeconomic is going to be. Now, you may be disruptive for a few weeks because Silicon Valley Bank runs out of business, but fundamentally, I don't think it will affect your business. So I wouldn't worry too much about those economic factors. When you hear companies like right now complain about it's difficult times to raise money and the economic factors, what are your thoughts when you hear of a company possibly running out of cash? Well, first of all, it's always difficult to raise money. I don't know about this myth where, you know, you just send an email to a VC and you get a 10 you know, a check. I have never seen this personally, but maybe it exists. It's very hard to raise money in no matter what. I think that if a company runs out of money, there's two cases. One is because they're poorly planned and they burn a lot of money doing all kinds of crazy things that didn't really do anything. And the second case is that they make a bet. We're going to make a bet that we're going to spend $5 million to build that product and that product will change the world and we lose the bet. That's okay, in my opinion, because that's what true entrepreneurship is all about. But when you run out of money, because because you spend on crazy things and you never really thought about money in the right way, then that entrepreneur shouldn't be able to raise any more money anymore because they just don't understand how important that money is. The other problem is you tend to spend more money when you have more money. So there's a law in physics that says a gas will fill the entire tank. Well, the more money you raise, the higher your burn rate is going to be because the investors say, well, I gave you all this money. You need to grow faster. So they buy revenue in a way and they grow faster, but they're not learning anything. So the problem is that if you have a dollar and I said, Sean, you only have a dollar, you can do one of those three things only. Which one are you going to do? That's a very different thought process. But Sean, here is $10. Do those three things. And by the way, there's two other ideas you should do. So you're going to do five ideas and you're never going to learn and you're not learning how to be disciplined and using 
the cash. And I think cash is like oxygen. If you don't have enough, you die eventually. But if you over oxygenate the human being, they die in a very different physiological process, by the way. But the end result is the same. They are dead. And I think a lot of that happens as well. How should a first time founder that may be fresh out of college or that's never really had to manage a large amount of capital before, how should they go about thinking or how can they get the skills or that to manage if they get that windfall, that investor writing a huge check? They should try to find mentors and people like me who can help them. But it has to be people who have been through it. If I give you parenting advice for two hours and you at the end of the day, you said, well, how many kids do you have, Philippe? And I said, but I don't have any kids. That's really weird because I would argue you cannot give, you shouldn't be allowed to be giving parenting advice if you haven't had kids. And so I think they are really good people, entrepreneurs out there. There are many of them in the Valley that are willing to help and you have to establish a trusted relationship with them and they can guide you. They, know, they don't want to run the business. You're the CEO, you're the entrepreneur, but really guide you with all honest, thoughtful, sensible advice and understanding and guidance in terms of how much money they should raise. How do they constitute a board? How do they interface with their board members? How do they deal with VCs? How do they deal with the term sheet? And all those questions. And I think there's many good people that can help them do that. They have to seek for those people because the learning curve is way too steep. Now, going back to the book, there was a mention of the sinking tower analysis. What is that? Well, it's kind of a physics principle. The principle in physics is that energy conserves. And the principle applied here is that the number of customers you have conserved. So if I ended up the year last year with 75 customers, I'm going to end up the year after with, let's say, 85 customers. So what happened is I added 13, but I lost three. So a customer from last year either graduate and continues to be a customer this year or they churn. And if they churn, they are below the line. And so if you have a lot of churn, your tower, which is your bar graph, sinks. But what happens is that because you're adding on the top new customers, you look at the tower and it's growing. But if you were to stop building that tower, in other words, adding new customers, you will see that it sinks, which is not a good thing. And so that's why I use this analogy. It's like you really have to understand what is the velocity at which you're adding customers and what's the velocity at which you're losing customers. But the number of customers are always conserved. And then you can do the same analysis on dollar amount, which doesn't conserve because pricing can be changed. You can increase or decrease your pricing. It's a really interesting way. And then you can color code those towers by the cohort. So you can look at the customers that became customers three years ago, two years ago, one year ago, and then you can start to see which one is sinking. Is the new customers, is the old? And then you ask yourself, well, why are they churning? And then you start to do real churn analysis. What is real churn analysis? Well, churn is a very complicated topic. In fact, we could spend two hours just talking about it, but I'll give you some flavors. People always say, well, churn is when you lose a customer. That customer doesn't buy anymore. That's what I call hard churn. The soft churn is when they spend less with me than they did the year before, right? So you spend $100 with me last year. Now you're spending $85. There's a $5 soft churn that I lost. Now, the hard churn is like tennis, this forced error and unforced error. If a customer goes out of business, they will churn. They're not going to buy from you anymore because they don't exist anymore. If a company gets acquired by Microsoft and you're selling a product that's competing against Microsoft, well, that company, your customer will now be on the Microsoft platform. There's no way they're going to stay with you. So they're going to churn. There is nothing you can do to prevent that churn, right? So that's a basically forced churn because... There's nothing you can do. The unforced churn is when you screw up and they don't like you anymore for whatever reason, you do something bad and then they go away. Or your competitor was able to capture them 
that's another types of soft churn because it's not because you did something right, something wrong. It's because you didn't do, you didn't understand that now competition is coming and you didn't change. You didn't realign with your market. So that's all the hard churn when you lose them completely. And the soft churn is interesting question is why are they paying this? It's because my price decreased. Well, I created that churn. So obviously I will expect that. But why are they not buying more? And, and then there's all kinds of questions we need to understand. And what does what those numbers really look like? So churn is really subtle. You really have to look at it. It's not black and white. There's a lot of nuances around it. Oh, that's fascinating. And, and going back to growth, where is that alignment between well, revenue and growth, I guess? Well, the growth is the product of the alignment. If you're well aligned, then you will grow because the people have the pain, you have the claim and they are and they buy and then your prospects they understand your claim and then the perception is aligned so they buy they get it and now okay i understand you have a pill is right for me i want to buy it the frictionless transaction if they want to buy a certain way that's the way you sell so they're going to buy and then they are happy you know that they are delighted by the product so when they are happy they're going to tell other people and the other people are going to look at the product and going to buy so this is a whole flywheel of how alignment will convert into growth over some period of time and that's why misalignment is in the way of growth. If you're not growing, if you're not going as fast as you can, it's because you're misaligned and you need to understand where and how. So looking at churn, looking at growth, looking at alignment, how often should a company be reviewing everything? Is this something that happens on a weekly, monthly, quarterly, daily basis? No, I think they look at their alignment twice a year, at the minimum once a year. It's like going to the doctor for a checkup. You do it once a year, maybe twice a year if you had a previous condition. I think that's the right cadence. You don't want to realign every three months because whatever change you made, you don't quite know if the change you need to give enough time to see the result of the change. You can't just jump to a conclusion because it doesn't work right away because usually it takes time. So I think at the minimum once a year, maybe twice a year would be. And you may just look at one of the four axes twice a year and maybe the other one just once a year. But every year you should do it. And in your book for the alignment the A4, there was a comparison between Macy's and Amazon. Share that example with our audience. Yeah, so this is an example where the misalignment is created by market changes. So before Amazon, people were going into a department store like Macy's and they would buy. That's the way people, there was no other ways. And then Amazon came and said, well, now there's a new way to buy, which is more convenient and much more frictionless. By the way, Amazon is a truly remarkable company. They went from $5.2 billion in revenue in 2002 to $514 billion last year in 2022. $514 billion, that's more than half a trillion dollars in revenue. It's really remarkable. So Macy, they were doing business the way they were. And yeah, they knew the internet was out there, they knew Amazon existed, but they never thought that people would actually start to buy the same kind of products to Amazon and not on Macy's. And so Macy's revenue was flat. Amazon was just growing like crazy. Amazon was more profitable because the structure of their cost enables them to do that. And if you had invested $1 in Amazon and $1 in Macy's back in 2000, you would make 80 or 100 times more on Amazon and like 10 times, I don't remember the exact numbers there in the book, but like 10 times your return on, on Macy's. So the market change, introducing a misalignment for Macy's, Amazon was well aligned because that the frictionless transaction is what people wanted. And one was well aligned and grew like crazy and the other one just didn't grow and Amazon, Macy's closing stores and it didn't go really anywhere. 
And for our audience, one of the reasons why I brought up this example, and I'm sure people have listened to past episodes, one of my first jobs was selling women's shoes at Macy's. <laughs> I did not know that. Uh, so I got a lot of Macy's stores. <laughs> I'm sure you were successful. <laughs> I did pretty well. I did yeah, pretty, sure. This was back in the day when Macy's actually did commissions. And you could imagine the commissions are selling women's shoes. So uh, with that, next question. <laughs> Amazon was an amazing company that just became misaligned because the market changed and they didn't quite adapt to it or didn't quite adapt fast enough for sure. And before wrapping up, can you tell our audience, leave out names, leave out company names, but give us a story of a company you've worked with, the problems they had when they taught to you. And if you want to give one, more than one example, feel free to do so. Well, I give an example because I think it's very telling and it's all about the second axis of alignment, which is the message versus the perception. We had a client that came to us and they were offering meals for busy employees. So they were selling through HR departments and they were saying, well, your employees are meeting in the company that was before the pandemic. And it's 12 noon, everybody's hungry. We don't want them to break up, get into a car, go somewhere, buy food or come back because we're in the middle of this strategic discussion meeting and we really want to capture and to continue the meeting. So the idea is that you would pull up your phone or your tablet and you would order lunch and then the company would bring lunch. Our client would bring lunch and then everybody was eating during the meeting and everybody was happy. There were a lot of companies offering this, but the difference is that our client had very healthy food and was very conscious about saving the planet, making sure that everything is recyclable, there's no plastic, everything was you know, organic. They had nutritionists on their team to figure out the meals and to make sure that it was balanced. And depending on your personality and your age and your weight, they would advise you. They say, we have three menus for you. You can take whichever you want. So we started to talk to their clients and they were very happy with the company and the company was positioning themselves as delivery and convenience, which is what everybody else was doing. So there was no differentiation. And we started to talk to their customers and we realized that the customers really liked the fact that it was healthy food. So after a while, we went back to the CEO and said, you are not in the business of delivering meals to busy employees, which is what they were telling everybody. I said, that's not the business you're in. So the CEO looked at me and she said, well, what do you mean? I said, you're in the business of prolonging life. And she's like, what do you mean? I said, well, there's millions of studies that says if you eat healthy, you will live longer. You will not, you know, you will have, you will be healthier and you will live longer. And by the way, you'll feel good about eating healthy because you don't have to go back to your wife and say, well, I had this heavy lunch today. You can say I had a salad and it was very healthy. So we completely changed the positioning of the company and we were saying we will deliver healthy food and make your employee live longer and be happier. And by the way, they also help save the planet and that's who we are. And we realized that their customers were willing to pay 18% more for this. So we increased the pricing by 18%. We printed the list of all their competitors, which we do never do before. And we would tell the head of HR, by the way, if your employees want, if they want to eat unhealthy food and greasy food and gain weight, those 18 companies are remarkable. They are doing such a good job and you should buy from them. Don't buy from us. But if they want to eat healthy, we're the only player in town. And so it's a very counterintuitive where you're pushing your competitors and making the point that they are doing the exact opposite of what you do. And so the differentiation was very clear. And so the company implemented that. They grew 18% right away because we changed the pricing. We increased the pricing by 18%. And then they got acquired for a nice number not too long after that. So we completely changed the growth trajectory by realigning the messaging and the perception of who they were. 
how often do you think that, or how often is your work not so much getting the the financials and the numbers, but redoing their brand? Well, the numbers don't answer the question. Think of the number by I'm doing blood work and I have your red cell count and I have your, all those numbers is giving us an indication of the health of the company, but they're not telling us what's wrong and they're not telling us what the company needs to do to grow. The messaging misalignment is one of the four axes that we deal with all the time and the companies get misaligned on this all the time. They don't really think it through or they thought that the original messaging they had three or five years ago when they funded the company is the one that's valid today, but it's not the case because the market has completely changed. So that's one of the areas. Another typical misalignment we see all the time is pricing optimization. A claim in our world doesn't exist without pricing. Because if I said, Sean, you can fly to Paris in two hours from San Francisco, are you interested? You're going to say, well, how much does it cost? And if I said it's $100,000, you're going to say, well, maybe not. Let's see this out. But if I say it's 15% more than the Air France flight, you're probably going to say, okay, two hours instead of eight hours, I'll do it. So a claim doesn't exist without pricing. You have to have a pricing. The problem is companies never really optimize their pricing. They don't think of it strategically. And they say, well, we sell at that pricing because our competition saying are selling at that pricing. Well, what if you have a claim that's much better than them? They should pay a premium. You should have a higher pricing. And what volume do you shift by changing your pricing, demand curve, those kinds of things? And that's something we see all the time. They are not thinking strategically about their pricing optimization. And I think it's a mistake. Fantastic. And with that, Philippe, if anyone wants to find out more information about you, what you're working on, your book, anything, what's the best way to go about doing it? Well, they could go to my company's website, which is bluedotspartners.com with an S at the end of dot and at the end of partner. Or they can go to aligningthedots.com, which is the title of my book. Or they can connect with me on LinkedIn at Philippe Wisu, B as in boy, O-U-I-S-O-U. We're going to have that information in the show notes. And for our audience out there, I'm not the host of the Silicon Valley podcast. I'm an investment banker focused on mergers, acquisition, growth capital, and secondaries. Please connect with me on LinkedIn or go to our website, thesiliconvalleypodcast.com to find out this episode, our past episodes, and what we're planning and we're working on in the future. And with that, Philippe, I want to thank you for taking the time to be on this week's episode of the Silicon Valley podcast. Thank you so much, Sean. Again, it was a real pleasure talking to you and thank you for inviting me. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. To access our resources, visit us at thesiliconvalleypodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.